Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Tuesday, March 14th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? Doing well. I, I feel like I've kept fairly busy between the text messages and the socials this week, and you actually have a decent idea of what I've been up to, though, uh, like, I always answer this question retroactively, so... The best part of my last week was actually seven days ago. Um, so not sure if that counts at all. Is that a concert? Yes. Uh, I, I thought I'd learn how to properly pronounce the band's name when I heard the crowd do it. And hopefully the band referred to themselves on stage. And I don't know if they actually did that. And the closest I got was Eluviti. Uh, it's like E-L-U-V-I-T-I-E. I'm not going to try. <laughs> anyway, incredible folk metal. Maybe it's just like the hidden recessive Scottish gene somewhere in me. But like as soon as I hear bagpipes and then like heavy guitar crunching, like something inside me just sings out. And uh, basically an hour and a half of releasing that a week ago. How have you been? Not too bad. You know, we're big fans of bagpipes over in this household. Uh, oh, yes, but yes. Yeah, it's been good had a good weekend spent it in toronto of course went to the leafs game last night my first live uh hockey game since before the pandemic so that was new and fun and interesting and not much has changed but at the same time a lot of differences as well that you notice when you're a little bit older attending these events now uh so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll i'll probably jump in a little bit about that later on in the pod but beyond that just hanging in there living another week uh march break currently for the youths which uh really hurts the soul but uh here we are in march i think it's starting to turn the corner towards spring uh which can't come soon soon enough and along with it the playoffs and other fantastic sporting events march madness starts two days yes sir all right since we've got a lot to get to i'm going to give myself a 90 second cap on telling you about the bank runs that happened over this weekend uh so silicon valley bank one of the upper tier it's kind of weird for us canadians to wrap our head around the u.s banking system where it's private and not that regulated and there's hundreds and it's regional as opposed to having like five or six really big banks with chains all over the country Um, but of those like private sectors the silicon valley one one of the biggest catering in its namesake silicon valley mainly to uh vc invested startups who deposit money and that's where this story kind of kicks off this bank was insured but those insurance were just 250,000 per account obviously when you're a startup and getting venture capital invested in your startup the money you store is going to be quite more than that now obama post 2008 regulated um something to make it that any bank with an asset of more than 50 billion would be under like stricter regulations than the smaller regional ones of which there's hundreds. So that existed until the president of the Silicon Valley Bank lobbied for three years, got Trump in 2018 to adjust that uh, cap from 50 billion to 250 billion. The bank was worth about 200 billion in assets or had 200 billion in assets. When the run started, uh, which it tried to 
who is basically making bad investments in this economy. We can blame some on the left as well. They were kind of doing the opposite of 2008, like super, super safe, non-speculative treasury and bond investments uh, in this high inflation economy with high interest rates. Those are not a very good thing for a bank to do long term when it's got um, billions of dollars coming in and out in the short term. Uh, so they try and move some money around, balance their books, get this ship righted, word uh, catches wind in the Silicon Valley, and uh, all the venture capitalists are doing a bank run like chickens with their head cut off. There's got to be a better metaphor for that, but I'm already 40 seconds over. So oh, take it away. Stupidly terrible, terribly stupid. Uh, the bailout coming only saves the depositors, not the executives. So that's kind of better a little maybe it's it's some semblance of relief it's it's stupidly terrible i i I cannot believe that this has happened the way it's happened again although at the same time what do you expect when you lobby a person who is going to follow the direction of those with wealth and influence and and be a, a talking head and so they get what they want they don't learn uh in in the world of banking and super corporate industry you forget what happened two years ago let alone 15 and so it it clearly is not surprising that they've gone and made similar mistakes coupled with the fact that We've lived in a very volatile economic environment the last three or four years, kind of right before the pandemic hit. And then all the way through the last three years, it has been a roller coaster ride. And all of that leading to, once again, some damages done to those who who need the money the most and raising alarm bells for people across the world that once again everyone needs to take a a closer look at what's being done with your money and and what some of these uh super executives are up to behind the scenes yeah we are less than a week into this story so i expect a lot of details still to emerge and we'll learn more there may be major pieces of the puzzle missing as what's been covered here so far but the two broad categories of news i file this under our one like the golden era of the tech industry seems to be over this happens in the context of layoffs Mm. um far below expected profits uh hiring freezes across the tech industry which has been in a virtual infinite growth cycle uh from basically the entire 2010 decades onwards somewhere into the covid pandemic and secondly as we talked about with the east palestine rail crash Uh, just a lot of lobbying for deregulation done by the owners who profit then off of their lobbying, which I feel like you could adjust into a thinly veiled metaphor and write a very dystopian novel about it. All right, on to sports where all the evil deregulation and awfulness has a target uh, in the form of stripes. So first, uh, we were talking about UFC last week, doing a recap. This week, we are doing a preview of a pay-per-view. Kamaru Usman and Leon Edwards will meet in the cage for a third time. 
with Edwards defending his newly acquired title that he got, knocking out uh, Kamaru in the fifth round of a fight he was losing. Um, and that puts a really interesting spin or haze on this narrative, though, because normal, like, there's a couple ways you can look at this. When you have a long dominant champ and everyone thinks they're a sure thing and they lose a lot of the time, they're never the same. Their age is a factor in that and Usman checks that off. Uh, being an athlete who relied heavily on explosiveness and athleticism, another box Usman checks and taking head damage, which Usman definitely checks. At the same time, he's looked so much better than Edwards for like over 30 minutes of cage time uh, between their two fights. Um, his strength and his cardio are just a two-piece combination that everyone struggled to deal with. And as he's slowly improved his technique, the wrestling were always was always there, but uh, adjusting it to be more MMA. And really getting more comfortable with the striking fundamentals, uh, getting becoming a smoother striker to use his power, and just being more comfortable, more adept in the pocket to be able to apply that pressure that his cardio lets him do uh, so much more safely than he could in his early days. Uh, both those qualities were really on display in the two fights against Edwards. A much more nuanced, high-level version, less sloppy Um time in the second title fight as opposed to the first time they fought but in a lot of ways still the same fight with edwards maybe having a few more big moments early on and uh gassing a little less though being in salt lake city at elevation that gassing was a huge part of the second round and part of second fight and part of why uh it looked so over for edwards until he wasn't with that head kick um and how the psychology of that head kick is going to affect Usman is going to be the really big tell for me. He was a bit slow in the first round of their second fight, feeling it out. Um, so maybe like two minutes in, seeing that isn't an all-out sign that it's over, that he's a different fighter. Uh, but by the end of the second round, I'm going to be looking for him to have done that thing he's done every time against Edwards, where he waits a little, decides he can handle the power, and starts walking through, willing to eat one to give two, and turning those lands into grappling exchanges, uh, which he stays really persistent on and does massive damage on the cardio, uh, setting up some easier takedowns later in the fight. And then on Edwards' hand, he knows exactly what Usman does. He knows he should know what he did wrong. He knew as soon as he walked out of that octagon that he was going to see Usman for a third time. So he's had all the time in the world to prepare to defend this title that he worked so hard to acquire and frankly got a little lucky in acquiring. So uh, lightning doesn't strike twice. He, like, let's see, did he rest on his laurels? Was that enough? Or does is this like the moment where we start a new era where the Usman era is over for good, like we've seen with so many dominant champions who just have that narrative turn on a dime and decline. So looking forward to seeing that, and uh, we'll have our recap for it next week. All right, moving on now. Yes, sir. Quick little stop here, as I've had a little bit of time on Sunday mornings the last few weeks to turn on and into the world of football. 
and the Gunners. A team of mine I have regretfully neglected for the last 15 years. But football, the playoffs happened like a month ago. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking footy, my friend. International soccer. Arsenal, top of the table still, pushing through. Uh, I got to experience the thrill of, of a competition winner in Canada soccer, winning the CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. But it is just as exciting to watch this young and up-and-coming Arsenal squad continue to dominate teams, and they did so uh, against Fulham on the road. Now, uh, having not conceded in any of their away derbies, something that hasn't been done in decades, and this team is just so well-disciplined. They get bodies behind the ball, and then they are so creative and so fluid uh, moving the ball into the attacking third, uh, and they they well could have won this game five nil. They take it three to nothing, and a really really fun win that keeps them five points ahead of City, with five winnable games before they do match up against said Manchester City late in the season, which could be for all the marbles. But enjoying the ride while it lasts, as uh, as Twenty One Savage once said, gotta see the Gunners win Premier League. Clip it. Clip it. All right. On to hockey then. Yes. All right. We'll we'll step away from the cringe moment there. Do you want to talk McDavid first? Yeah, a story. I, I mean, we kind of take it for granted that he is the best offensive and best player, period, in the world at the sport of hockey right now. Um, but we do have to stop every once in a while and just say it out loud. He has passed his career high in points around the 65-60 game mark of this season. Uh, Just ridiculous stuff. And he's on pace to like set numbers no one has in the salary cap era. I don't have a lot on this. Just felt like we had to acknowledge it. We'll touch on trophies as we get to it. But like McDavid, probably the only player in the NHL and NBA who has any trophies locked down 100%. Until he retires or significantly regresses as a player, he really should be locked into this award year after year, uh, minus voter fatigue, which we've already seen a couple times early on. He should win it every year, and yet, due to narrative, he doesn't. We're kind of running into that now with Jokic on the NBA side. Uh, people looking for an excuse at this point to try and and move towards an Embiid or a Giannis. And the same thing's happening here with Connor. Like the dry side argument's been made or the lack of team winning has been made. But he got challenged to score 60 goals at the beginning of the season. He is going to crush that mark, which is just stupid. And he is going to add to his I think this will be the third season in his career where he leads the NHL in goals assists and points and he's going to be one of six to ever do that and the only player who's going to have done it more is is Wayne Gretzky and McDavid really is still just getting started what he's 26 now Something like that. Not even in his absolute prime, which is just frightening stuff. He is another species. There's all the things you can say and more about what he is as a player. 
we got to see the Leafs beat Edmonton in thrilling fashion over the weekend. I was jumping up and down with those goals, but he just steps over the boards and fear ripples through your veins when when he touches the puck because he just creates something every time he's in the vicinity of the play. So he is 26 years old, has played 67 games this season, scored 55 goals, and has 127 points. It's ridiculousness. That's just seven points short of a two-point-per-game pace throughout the whole season. Um, Just Lemieux, Gretzky, these are the names he's up there with, and it's done in an era of the NHL which has been getting drifting more offensive over the years, uh, but really has not seen that kind of production since early 2000s, 90s, 80s. Uh, to do it in this era of hockey is incredibly special. And I, I don't know, like, is the hype on Bedard real? Like, can we maybe like speculate about that crown going in three years? Uh, the way like it kind of unanimously passed off from Crosby to McDavid. I'm excited to find out. There's nothing more to say. He is unbelievable. He is McJesus. Let us bask in him. Thanks, McDaddy. (laughs) All right, a little bit extra hockey for you. Uh, So a friend of my father's lent us tickets to the Leafs-Sabres game last night at Scotiabank Arena. First impressions was that they need to figure out the incoming traffic of that building because it is still a bit of a zoo trying to find your way to the right spot. Um, They did a good job just letting people in basically at every entrance. You don't need to go in through a specific gate, but just still a bit of a, a mad scramble to find where you're supposed to go. Once you're in there, concessions, outrageously priced, but that's nothing new. Uh, And then... I think it was I had a alcoholic beverage and a tall can alcoholic beverage and a popcorn for $30. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Domestic, not important. Yeah, yeah. In in arena production, solid. I think they can do more. It's nowhere near the level of a Vegas, but that's also a Vegas where they're trying to build a community and build an NHL presence, whereas the Leafs could do just about anything and get people there watching. So that was cool. Uh, and then the game itself, really weird kind of first period where the teams felt each other out. Buffalo only had two shots in the first period that were on net, uh, but didn't feel super one-sided one way or the other. Then the Leafs get two quick goals. You think they've got this game well in hand? And then they completely let go of the steering wheel and drive straight into a tree, which I haven't seen this Leafs team do in a while. They're a team that hasn't blown a lead in such spectacular fashion in in quite a a while. They have gotten off to slow starts or they've had complete games where they just looked out of it. But typically when they're winning, they don't give up leads at least this year. Because <laughs> I can't believe I just heard myself say that out loud. Yeah, But they do so. Alex tucked us to bed. And 
this Owen Power kid is the real deal as a number one pick. He has mm-hmm. the size and the grace and the patience and the poise that you're going to need. And him and Darlene as a one-two punch on the left side is formidable for the Buffalo Sabres. Craig Anderson, in all of his 42 years of glory, somehow won that one for Buffalo and made some big saves. And Matthews, Marner, Nylander, such a treat to watch in person. I haven't really gotten to see them in person in their primes, so really, really cool to see them. But there wasn't enough. And my big takeaway from the game was that in the end, it's not super important because you still know who you're going to play in the playoffs. This is kind of just figure it out time and keep pace and try and just get that home ice advantage against Tampa. But sooner rather than later, I would like to see Sheldon Keefe get away from seven defensemen and get back to four lines because we were missing some pop in the forward group. They did have those, they did have three goals in the game, but it did feel like a struggle at times. And and not all of those lines were clicking. So I think Ryan O'Reilly, of course, is going to be massive to have back. But it would be I, I would like to see maybe a Holmberg or a Simmons or just someone get tossed in to try and add a little bit more energy to that forward group because the top guys were playing some big minutes, which you don't want to see at this point in the regular season. Overall, 8 out of 10. Really enjoyed the game. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering when we were going to get to the hockey uh, as the whole intro went through. I had the nice brainwave of not pausing the clock. I ran on that intro, so we're sitting right around the 20-minute mark. So let's see if we can get through the basketball in around 10 and leave some time for tennis. Um, so trade deadline retroactive. Most teams seem to have played around 12, 13 games since February 9th. Of course, some trade acquisitions were made three, four days before that. So uh, say roughly teams have had 12 to 15 games with their new pieces, except for the Phoenix Suns, as I think we'll start off with. Not Shocking to me, oh, that KD gets injured, uh, maybe a little humorously quick, and with the Suns not having lost in the three games he did play with them, uh, he will be back in time for playoffs, I believe. He should be. That's what they're planning on. But uh, th- this is part of probably why Nets management was uh, so partly willing to move on uh, in return or for the right return, he really hasn't given any team a full regular season uh, with since the Golden State Warriors. And if it wasn't for that one playoff series he had against the Bucs, I feel like the value might be a lot lower, but everyone around the league having seen that and knowing what he can do if he makes it to the playoffs healthy has uh, maybe kept that value a little unrealistically inflated with the injury risk he's had though like the suns it's not about making the playoffs it's about showing up when they do uh on a bit of a like two or three game slide here not uh looking to run up the seating at this rate too much they're currently sitting in the fourth yeah although at the same time like that was a freak accident and every time he steps on the court it's 30 points even retroactively it they reevaluate him and he's good. It's kind of that Kawhi situation where Phoenix is going to end up in the spot that they end up, 
And as long as you have a fully healthy Kevin Durant come playoff time, they'll figure it out. He's just that good. And he elevates the team beyond whatever ceiling they had before. And they would be my favorite heading into the playoffs if he is fully healthy and we see two more games of them getting just to work on on some of the offensive sets and sharing the ball the way it sits right now a suns warriors first round series oh my would goodness. be delectable and that would be something all eyes would have to be on every moment but even retroactively with the amount that they gave up how bridges and johnson look and the kd injury it's still just a move that doesn't come around once in a while and you have to make it and then you still get the the years after the fact it's not a rental he'll likely stay and you'll get more time out of this deal yeah it, it's ultimately going to be settled by how many of those years does he play and does it get even worse from what it's been in brooklyn which i would say is not great uh as you you mentioned bridges and johnson i thought bridges or i i've thought bridges has looked pretty much as expected with uh, the Nets. He gets a bigger role to step into and is able to fill those shoes. Uh, not like a full-blown superstar in the traditional sense, but with the defense that he brings, uh, with the increased role on offense, I think it's been a pretty good fit with the Nets. And uh, we'll see again long-term what he looks like or how long he's there for. Uh, but that trade acquisition looking pretty good on the Nets. We knew they were going to slide, uh, but they still have a decent chance to stay out of the play-in. But but they're about to start fighting for the Knicks for that five and six spot, and there is a big difference between matching up uh, with the fourth place Cleveland Cavaliers or any one of the big three in the East. Yeah. Right now, it would be Philadelphia. It could also be Boston, which you definitely don't want as the sixth seed either way. Hundred percent, and no disrespect to Cleveland, I think they're going to be really good in come playoff time with the how their team is structured and the size that they have and the confidence that those two guards have. But it's just a matter of playoff experience and the absolute peak level player on those three other teams, like Apex Tatum, Apex Yonix, Apex Embiid is just greater than an Apex Garland or Mitchell. Now, Mobley could enter that conversation. I just don't think he's there yet, and you can't expect him to be there yet in his second year in the league. Yeah, yeah. Like, I look at Mitchell as the guy who could, on the Cavs, show up in the playoffs and put up some of those, like, 40-game performances. And he's done it before. Keep making shots in the fourth quarter. Like, if if the Cavs are going to give one of those three teams a scare and go deep, go blow for blow with them, that's mostly going to be off of Mitchell's back with like some surprise one game, one quarter performance is from other players around the cast. I've got to say, though, I think my biggest winner this trade deadline is the Lakers uh, based off what we've seen so far. They currently, like with LeBron James injured, they're currently seven and three. Uh, in their last 10, uh, sitting in the nine seed right now, uh, they've put some space, a little space between the Blazers, the Utah Jazz, and the Oklahoma City Thunder still right on their tails. Uh, they're virtually tied with the Pelicans and the Thunder in the Who nine they tonight and 11 spots. Every game matters right now. It was an amazing time to buy League Pass. 
on which I did watch Saturday's Lakers-Raptors game, uh, which really highlighted these acquisitions by the Lakers. They win the bench points, something like 52 to 10. The Raptors do what the Raptors do and completely shut down Anthony Davis. And the the rest is happy to pick up the slack. I don't think D'Angelo Russell or Austin Reeves missed a three-pointer in the fourth quarter. Uh, so bad bench play by the Raptors. Bad luck to be have those guards get so hot uh, and keep the lead. Uh, but it really highlighted... Um, how great these acquisitions were for the Lakers and they really didn't give up that much to make such a substantial jump in team quality. Their their team just makes sense now. Westbrook out the door, Vanderbilt in, Beasley in, D'Angelo Russell even doesn't play the best defense, but he's just a creator, right? He at the very least he's someone who can drive an engine for you on offense in a more efficient manner that than even a, a Westbrook does for them right now in this modern era of the NBA. A big piece of it is Anthony Davis leveling up. He has been off the charts the last few weeks, but it's that it's that two-way play that they've done. They've had the number one defense in the league now, I think since about a week before the trade deadline, which is around the time that they made those deals. And so, like you said, true winners of this, they're going to keep pushing and big game tonight against the Pelicans, which will shift some seating around. But if they can win that, they're in position here to even pass the Mavericks and jump potentially out of the play-in if you even thought that was possible. Yeah, Could you it... imagine a, a Lakers, what, Lakers-Kings, Lakers-Memphis first-round series? As much as you love those Kings and Grizzlies teams, that's another situation where there's a discrepancy in the been there, done that guys on, on these teams. So really, really fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to the playoffs. I don't know if you can tell Max. I am, but like the regular seasons usually lost me by now, but it's still so important. And so many of the games are so enticing. Like right now, every team, 13 through one when they're playing each other pretty much has some implications and importance and uh that's been really enjoyable to watch so yes i'm excited for the playoffs but I, i'm not impatient for them to get there and i'm enjoying the journey as we arrive beautiful looks like we got the next one here on the list Kyrie irving yeah uh it's been a rough go for the Mavs especially they go three and oh at the start of that acquisition and then since neither the... of them playing at the same time though yeah uh no that's why why I mean and then Luca comes back and it, it's been 50 50 or worse basketball since they're three and seven in their last 10 the only team in the top 10 of the west to be there um it, it it's just this I, the offensive upgrade we expected is there, but uh, they've been losing these close games all season, and uh, it, it's just continued here, and they seem to be losing a few more of them. Yeah, I think it shows how much of an offensive engine Luka is by himself, that the addition of Kyrie improves their offense, but the switch out of Dorian Finney-Smith for Kyrie Irving defensively is has been more impactful neg negatively for this team and they just they don't get stops anymore 
I will say I don't think any other team in the league is going to be more prepared for like fourth quarter playoff crunch time. Every possession mm-hmm. matters. Uh, they've certainly put their reps in there. And Luca already showed some flair for that in previous playoffs. So I'm not counting this team out. Um, of no one like we weren't no one saw that run coming against the Suns until it started. So uh, mm-hmm. of all the they're almost becoming a bit of a dark horse for the playoffs after making it to the Western Conference Finals yeah. last season, which I find interesting. Uh, any other quick trade Quick hitters notes? on the, on the yeah. role players here. Love Josh Hart to the Knicks. Just thought it was a really simple pickup. Surprised the price wasn't higher. Same with Jared Vanderbilt, right? That was a similar fold, similar cloth of player. Uh, and he adds another ruggedness, offensive rebounds, dive on the floor type hustle that Knicks fans uh, have instantly become enamored with. And then Jakob Pertl, although the Raptors record-wise, it hasn't borne out what you'd expect the improvement to be, I still like the extra dynamic and defensive yeah. presence, rebounding, someone you can throw at an Embiid uh, in the paint, someone who just provides a bit more of a wall against these top tier players. I think they just, they needed a seven footer. They needed a true center. Uh, and he provides more than just that rebounding in defense. He also is a decent passer and great screen setter, which has helped Fred Van Vliet's mm-hmm. efficiency go up considerably. It's really looked to me like the time he's, he's off the floor. That's the problem more than when he's on the floor uh, in what I've seen. All right, we're moving on to tennis talk here. The Indian Wells well and underway with every fourth round matchup uh, on the ATP side of things happening today. Uh, Well, not all of the matches will have started even um, by the time as this podcast airs. So we'll, uh, we're going to focus on the what was billed looked like the best match of the fourth round and 100% lived up to it. Alexander Zverev versus Daniel Medvedev. Neither player having the 2022 they wanted to with Medvedev uh, going on a bizarre losing tear. Zverev getting injured in the semifinals at Roland Garros, not playing the rest of the year. Uh, So the seeding not really reflecting that these are two of the best players in the world going at it. Medvedev on a 16-match win streak going in and Zverev slowly regaining the form he had before the injury. And he really took it up to another level in this match against Medvedev. Oh, no one's really been able to solve it, to put constant pressure on. Uh, But coming out of the gates, uh, Alex was just hitting hot, hitting with confidence. I love the shot selection. He was doing such a good job of nailing it in the corners, but not trying to paint lines and giving himself enough margin of error to consistently make the shots while the power and the placement was enough to construct the point as he wished uh, with those angles that he was choosing uh, the forehand more than the backhand, which was a bit interesting. But he was playing so well offensively that he could afford to have a few errors, and he by far looked like the best player in the first set. He broke early and then like had a bit of a stumbling to get broken back, uh, but it wasn't a shocker in the tiebreak to see him take it uh, as he'd just been the more consistent player throughout the set. Then a really difficult start to the second set. He goes up uh, receiving Medvedev's serve, Love 40, Medvedev fights them all off, gets it back. 
Same thing next time goes up love 40. Medvedev fights them all and gets them back. So if you include the uh one of the the last game Medvedev served before going into that first set tie break, that was three matches in a row, nine break points, and Zverev got none of them. Uh, saying it like that doesn't capture quite how well Medvedev was serving on those break points. Uh, he didn't start off the match serving great, but when it mattered, he seemed to find a first serve almost all the time and uh, either get a winner off it or something that set up a pretty easy winner and was going to take something spectacular from Zverev. <clears throat> and of course, that's incredibly demoralizing as a player. Medvedev does a great job building some momentum off of it. And as he earns his first break chance in the second set, he slips, falls out of nowhere, and he goes down and doesn't even move for a minute. Uh, his, his hands are over his face. Like, it looks like he knows it's over. I thought it was done. And it was impossible to imagine him moving uh, with the skill set that this match had been, the level it had been. It was impossible to imagine him getting back to that, the way he was treating it so delicately but spends five minutes recovering, gets it wrapped, and um, gets right back up almost like it never happened. Zverev able to fight off that break point and ultimately hold his serve, um, but Medvedev was able to continue to rack the pressure, and when it went into the tie break, uh, Zverev also missed another break point, so he went 0 for 10 that set, and Medvedev was able to take the tie break uh, without too much difficulty. It, it seemed like his first serve had really picked up by the end of that second set where it wasn't really providing him anything easy in the first serve. He was moving through his service games a lot more fluidly at this point. And so third set, it seemed like it might be over. Uh, one of the headlines going into this match was Medvedev is really hot. Zverev is coming back from injury. He's shown flashes, but I don't know if he can maintain the level of play he needs against Medvedev. Uh, for long enough to win this match and it kind of looked like that was the drop-off had started at the end of the second set was continuing into the third medvedev breaks pretty early in the third set the errors are coming more from zuberov he almost breaks again he's holding his service games easily and then suddenly uh on the game to win the match zuberov decides he can return for serves that are coming to him at 132 miles for an hour and he starts earning all these 50 50 points and just the shot selection and confidence comes back in the rallies uh in like we had multiple like 50 50 rallies that were 10 plus shots and just so electric uh fantastic by both players Zverev breaks back and then he slips a little again Medvedev breaks him back and is able to win the match ultimately a lot of errors from Zverev but still the biggest challenge really we've seen anyone give Medvedev a fantastic match we don't have the information on the injury yet but um medvedev looks like the player to beat and him versus alcaraz is the dream matchup in this final which is really the look at the next generation of tennis after the big three all right we're almost out of time podcast notes finally anything to go i'm rambling i got nothing all right i got nothing for this week in awesome sports next door signing out <laughs>